Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is a great interview because Mona Mahajan has one of the great double major undergraduate degrees in the combine of North American education out of Wharton in economics and computer science as well. And Mona, that means you know that there's a zero and one in computer language. Did we get enough of a zero and one decision tree off of Friday's Mexico discussion, off of the various central bankers discussions that you need to, on a zero and one basis shift aggressively the Allianz strategy? Hi, Tom. Hi, John. Uh, happy Monday. And yes, the Friday news was uh, certainly an interesting one. In, in some ways, we actually felt that tariffs perhaps worked with Mexico. Um, interestingly, you know, when you compare Mexico to China, the uh, United States is a much larger trading partner with Mexico, accounts yeah. for nearly you know, 80% of Mexican exports, about 30% of GDP. The U.S. for China is only about 19% of exports, you know, 4% of GDP, call it. So, you know, really <clears throat> clearly a more um, clear incentive for Mexico to act in the face of tariffs. Does it change your strategy? Uh, Does it? I want to know, on an equity market or bond market basis, did you have to adjust off that information? So we are still very much uh, concerned about the second half of the year when uh, the Chinese tariffs perhaps es escalate to a full 25% on $525 billion of imports. Uh, we think that could create some downside uh, pressure on the economy, on the consumer in particular. And so until we get uh, some direction on that, we remain defensive a little bit more conservative, I would say. So no, not a real change, although we do expect uh, some, you know, risk on, as you talked about, some perhaps a bounce given a positive, uh, you know, some positive progress with Mexico. Mona, there seems to be some confidence here that the Fed can engineer a soft landing. We're kind of back to that story, aren't we? Before, maybe a couple of weeks back, this tug of war between viewing low rates as a uh, a buffer to risk assets versus viewing low rates as signalling something bad. The latter was winning out. Then last week, it feels like the former is winning again. Mona, do you yeah. think the Fed can engineer what is called a soft landing? Well, it's interesting. You know, we maybe have a, a slightly different perspective. I do think last week we did see a nice bounce off, you know, a 5 to 7% correction in the S&P. But uh, earlier on the in the year when markets were calling for a Fed rate cut, we didn't see the case for that as much. Um, you, you know, the idea of an insurance cut, the idea that perhaps they'll cut to stimulate inflation, to us didn't quite make sense, didn't quite meet their mandates. Now, as we're talking about the pressures building on the second half of the year, perhaps downsides to the global economy, the idea of a rate cut is making more and more sense to us. Um, I think, you know, if the Fed does see the whites of the eyes of a downturn or recession, yeah. they will be forced to act. And so, uh, you know, as the market starts pricing in more and more rate cuts, we don't know if three makes sense, but perhaps one or two by year end uh, actually does start to make sense. But we'd, we'd like to see some real data deterioration and perhaps beyond what we've okay. seen already. World's coming to an end, except I got a VIX at 16.07 with futures printing Dow 26,000. What do I do with cash that I must deploy to equities? Do I sit on it or am I enthused to acquire shares this morning? Yeah, you know, we, we still remain um, 
defensive across equities and fixed income. But what, what we talk about still in equities is the barbell approach. And, um, you know, what we like on one hand of that barbell continues to be those parts of technology that perhaps are not as, um, you know, exposed to China, but areas like uh, mobile payments, cloud computing, perhaps cybersecurity, which should be enhanced going forward. The other hand of that barbell continues to be the more defensive area. So we like the staples and the healthcare, which have lagged this year, which can do well in a decelerating growth environment. The cloud around healthcare, I think, has lifted a little bit. And so valuations actually look okay there. So in the risk on part of the barbell, Mona, you're looking for the secular growth stories. Is that right? Yes. So those are the secular growth stories that really, you know, for long-term investors um, with a three to five-year horizon, these are areas of technology that are now less cyclical. So tech has historically been, you know, up and down, up and down. But, you know, areas like a mobile payments or even cybersecurity or or parts of the cloud are uh, interesting to us because, uh, you know, they can just continue to grow, expand their share and perhaps are in the second growth mode. Mona, thank you so much. Mona Manhajan joins us this morning from Allianz on the equity markets. Mark Chandler, Bannockburn, uh, with us, who for years has said avoid the blended indexes, trade weighted, and look at the pairs, pairs, pairs. Is Renminbi got a vector finally through seven J, uh, Goldman Sachs rather over the weekend? Well, here, you know, a tinge of that. Yeah, here's what I did. I looked at a page that you have on Bloomberg, FXFM. Yeah, you, you know, like that. What hmm. it shows you is based on current volatility. You have a band around current spot given the volatility within three months the odds are that we're going to break that 700 level. That is that to say that 700 is sort of the meat part of a bell-shaped curve. And so I think it's not such a big call. I think that what's more interesting to me is, to your point, John, about how much the Chinese are concerned about it, how much they're going to offend it. And we were, we're not going to know it until we get a little bit closer to it. You know, I think that today was a bit of a catch-up move because China was closed on Friday. And so they did take the CNH, the offshore, yeah. maybe lower. And so the onshore just sort of played a little bit of catch-up with it. I want to give it a couple more days to see what the Chinese are really going to do here. So the choice, the decision mix is essentially, from a Chinese policymaker standpoint, do you constrain, do you tolerate, or do you engineer? There were some people worried about them engineering currency weakness. No sign of that whatsoever. Some people thought they might constrain it. Little sign of that too. It looks like maybe, Mark, they actually just tolerate the weakness. They just let it happen. Sure. I think that there's a good case that can be for that. I mean, you see even yesterday or earlier today when the Asian equity markets all moved higher, China really struggled. And I think maybe even the Shanghai might have been even the underperformer in the whole region last night. And so I think people are a bit reluctant because they're afraid of this vicious cycle. Currency weakens, so we sell off the stocks. Stocks weaken, so we sell off the currency again. And it's not clear how, it, how, how yeah. they break that. I, I love the way you framed FXFM with, with dollar. Remember, I just looked at the volatility surface, folks, which doesn't play on TV or radio. It's wicked complicated. But, you know, it's truly, Mark, a one-way bet on Renminbi or Yuan weakness. Anytime I say one-way bet, all my radar goes up. Is the street wrong on this? I mean, can there be a case for currency stability? Well, I think that's what China really wants in the big picture thing. So I think that a weaker RMB, what it does is it really shifts, it really deters China from doing the kind of reforms it wants to do to move up the value-added chain. So I think that China has it in their interest to avoid a vicious cycle 
and a, and a sharply weaker currency to, to your point about engineering it. But tolerating a little bit of weakness probably doesn't hurt that much, especially given that's the direction of policy in general, right? Economy a bit weaker, you expect some stimulus. Uh, the the uh, PBOC governor said they have plenty of stimulus. Yeah. And so I, I think that's just perfectly consistent with it. So let's talk about the effectiveness of the stimulus from the Chinese so far. Expected policy drives markets because it shapes forecasts of future outcomes. The future outcome that stimulus from the Chinese is shaping is essentially that the rest of the world could well stabilize. That was the belief going into the second half of this year. Looking at the trade data from China, Mark, what can we read into the effectiveness of that stimulus so far when the import data is still so weak? Yeah, it's hard for me to read this because I see a lot of this being gamed. Right? A lot, a lot of uh, uh, two things happening. I think one is that a lot of uh, businesses in the U.S. may be importing a lot more stuff from China to uh, to build up inventories before tariffs go into effect. I can see uh, China doing similar things on their end, but I also think there is a weakness in the Chinese economy, and we see this through the commodity through the, through the commodity imports. You know, they've had a, a huge uh, African swine problem, have to, have to call their herd. And so what happens is soybean imports plunged. Uh, you've got uh, oil, uh, the oil imports fell as well. And this, this is what you'd expect to see from a weakening economy or an economy that's got some shock. So I think that uh, it's funny, you know, most people disbelieve a lot of Chinese data unless it's weak. And then we believe it. <laughs> That's where the investor bias is right now. <laughs> really interesting story coming out of Vietnam, Tom. You might be interested in this. Some Chinese exporters going yeah. to extreme lengths to avoid the tariffs from the United States. Vietnam saying over the weekend that it found dozens of fake product origin certificates and illegal transfers by companies trying to sidestep U.S. tariffs on everything from agriculture to textiles to steel. This showing up in Vietnam. And if you look at the Vietnam trade data, we have seen a huge boom, Mark, coming from Vietnam into the United States. Yeah, this is a, a remarkable thing. You know, uh, early in my career when Reagan was the president, uh, Japan was the Asian power we were afraid of. Uh, they accounted for about 40% of U.S. imports. So now uh, 35 years later or something like that, and now China accounts for about uh, 40, 40, 45% of U.S. imports. And what we're going to do is block Chinese imports into the U.S., and they're just going to go someplace else. And Vietnam is probably the point of sort of point that everybody's focused on right now. And by the way, the Treasury Department has increased its surveillance of countries yeah. under the currency under its currency watch. You wonder if they're looking at Vietnam. Vietnam was what they. they yeah. Vietnam is part of that now. Let's talk about what it means for markets. You've got two calls, weaker dollar, higher equities. They're not connected as far as I'm aware, Mark. So walk me through the two separate calls. Yeah, so sure. So on the dollar, you know, I was, uh, Bloomberg published a book of mine back in 2009, and I talked about a, a, a secular bull market for the dollar. And now I'm concerned that that secular bull market for the dollar is over. i tell you a quick three, uh, three little factoids for you. One is the policy mix has changed from tight monetary, loose fiscal, which is very positive for a currency, to its exact opposite. Secondly, interest rate differentials have been a leg for the dollar. They've been moving against the U.S. for six months say against Europe that yeah. is and the third thing is that another good page I use on Bloomberg WCRS I look at the purchasing power parity using the OECD's model the euro is the most undervalued currency around 23% undervalued so I co combine these things changing policy mix in the US narrowing interest rate differentials and an overvalued dollar undervalued euro and that's what gives me my sense that the dollar is going to uh, pull back so what about on the equity markets equity market I'm, I'm bullish I think that essentially what we saw is that uh, that May decline was in like a, a three-leg decline hit a retracement target almost 
almost to yeah. the tick and coming back here. I think there's no place else for investors to put their money. Bonds at low yield. We've got something like $11 trillion of negative yielding bonds now in the world. So More than that, I think, Mark. Yeah, where can you get the money? So I think it just pour, forces us more and more into the equity market. For good or for bad, yeah. it, it drives us into the so equities. So let me put you on the spot because Mark Dow out on Twitter asked this question. I think it's a great mental exercise for everyone just to get together and ask themselves this question. The next 10% move in equities, higher or lower? You think I, higher? I guess it's higher. Mark Chandler, great to catch up with you. Bannock Mark, Burn thank Global. You so much. Thank you. Really, Chief really Market good. Strategist joining us here at Bloomberg in New York. Big week ahead again, Tom. Uh, CPI, PPI coming up Tuesday, Wednesday. Retail Wednesday. sales. Retail sales yeah. coming up on Friday. Yeah. We'll yeah. hear from President Draghi, I think, Wednesday as well. So some ECB speakers. What can he say after well, the Well, over the weekend, there was a report from Reuters over the weekend that officials, some of the officials they'd spoken to, ready to cut rates if the data gets worse. I have no idea where ECB monetary policy goes, given where it is right now. Okay, but, but Mark Chandler, very quickly here, because of time, it's just a race to the bottom. I mean, it's, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it seems like what the central banks want to do is tell the world that they, they, they can do more if needed. The question is, will more be needed? Will more really be needed? So what from is this QE? I've lost count. What's L. Arian got? QE6? <laughs> I, I mean, Seriously. <laughs> Haven't we all been here well, before? Well, what do they buy next? I mean, to Mark's point, you've already got around $12 trillion of negative yeah. yielding assets worldwide. Where do they go next? Yeah, they buy corporates. Know. They've bought sovereigns. Do they buy equities? You guys, you guys, and if they go to an SMB-style depot guys, rate, just, do they bring in a tiered rate? You guys are doing all this fancy currency stuff. What are you up to should, over should there? I move, should I move to Connecticut? Why don't you want to move to Connecticut? I that's where I went for this wedding. Oh, did you like There's it like up there? There's like lawns. I just want to I go. I thought people were leaving Connecticut. I think so. I got to you know, go back to get lonely all, up I there. I thought everyone was heading to Florida. No, they're leaving Connecticut, seriously, because of a lot of tax. I just Selling the Connecticut dollar. I want to <laughs> buy a California trimmer, high-cut 20-inch, five-blade. What is that? GX. It's, a, it's a lawnmower. It's a lawnmower. <laughs> you, oh, yeah. You go, you go mow lawn. I could see you after mowing the lawn. Have you ever mowed a lawn? Yeah. Seriously, have you, you, when did you yeah. last mow a lawn? <laughs> My father was the last person on the block to have a power mower. I was so when, out there no, when, did, when did you last mow a lawn? Oh, Are we got like 50 Nick, years ago? Nixon was president. <laughs> Mark Chandler, great to catch up with you. Can you see in Connecticut? I, I, I can see you in Connecticut. I can't see you mowing a lawn. This is a joy. Uh, we're going to talk to someone knee-deep in the modern politics. Of course, many of our listeners are going to go, yo, that's great, but it's still you got to get in the voting booth and vote. And vote. But there's a certain way to brand, to get message out, et cetera. Ben LeBolt, um was, you know, to call it a, a young advisor to Mr. Obama, where he would say, Senator, and he'd raise his hand up and say, excuse me, sir, because he was that young. Now he's ancient. He's like really moved on to the ancient level. And Ben LeBolt joins us here on the new politics and how President Trump is taking best practices from President Obama, written up with great acclaim over the weekend in The Atlantic magazine. Ben LeBolt joins us uh, this morning. Ben, good morning. With you, wow! You you aged me quickly. I aged you quickly. Let's. You know, what I find fascinating is you came out of Middlebury College, where you were like the head of the Democrat, the college Democrats, or whatever. Are there any Republicans at Middlebury College? <laughs> well, uh, when when I was there, uh, I would say the student body was maybe uh, twenty to twenty five percent Republican, yeah. conservative. So they they actually <clears throat> taught me how to be a better debater. We had some very very smart ones in my classes. 
That's good to get that going. And of course, a lot of people would say the younger crew is less engaged today than it really should be. I, I want one more general question before we get to your wonderful Atlantic Magazine article. What's the impact of Bernie Sanders do? I mean, it, it's the second time around for Mr. Sanders. He is aged, etc. Is there a, the same impact or the different impact with his loyal younger following? Well, I, I think Senator Sanders changed the terms of the debate. He came forward with some very bold policy ideas uh, like free college, like Medicare for all, that I think have moved where the Democratic primary electorate is. Um, I do think there are some candidates who've embraced aspects of his policies who have a better chance of, of winning the nomination and beating Donald Trump in the long run. So they've taken the best of Bernie, but I think have more realistic plans to win on election yeah it, you, the last sentence of your uh, it, it, atlantic idea so important if democrats don't act now the trump campaign will define the general election on its own terms before we can even choose our nominee he's the incumbent he's supposed to do that right well uh he's exploiting a contentious primary look there's 23 democrats competing on our side of the aisle, it's going to be a long and contentious primary because we've got very strong candidates. And what Donald Trump is doing is he's taking every day that started on January 1st of this year to talk to persuadable voters in battleground states and get his message out. My view is that we need to start filling that gap on the Democratic side of the aisle and not just focusing on right. the primary. How do you define liberal progressive? I mean, I mean, we had George Will on age 78. He's, he's, it's my book of the year. It's a book, uh, Ben, that everyone should read. Progressive, liberals, conservatives, everybody to read to get the old theology brought forward, the new theology. But what's the Democrat Party theology, the Democratic Party theology that can win right now? Is it more to the center? Can they, can they actually go more liberal? Uh, well, I, I think it's a broad opportunity agenda that no matter who you are and what means you're born with, there should still be a chance to get ahead in this country if you work hard. Uh, and with the Trump administration, I think we've seen uh, self-dealing. I think we've seen a tax cut that rewarded corporations, but uh, actually raised taxes on people in states mm-hmm. where, you pay, where you had the state and local tax exemption. Uh, So the Democratic Party is a broad tent. And I think we want to go into this election, not only attracting self-defined progressives, but attracting independents and even last Republicans who uh, see the Republican Party, don't associate with the Republican Party of today, though they have in the past. Ben LeBolt with his folks, uh, an important article, Atlantic Magazine. Whatever your politics, it really defines the dynamics of modern campaigning right now. What is the best practice from a Senator Obama or a President Obama term two that President Trump will utilize forward? Well, what I think he's doing is is taking the reelection playbook that he saw the Obama campaign implement. Now, when we started that campaign at the beginning of 2011, the New York Times gave President Obama a 17 percent chance of being reelected based on historic economic indicators. Uh, we realized early in that year that voters had forgotten how bad the financial crisis had been and the potential peril as President Obama entered office. And we've been hemorrhaging jobs at the end of the Bush administration. Uh, we reminded them of the big decisions he made to get us back on track from 
the Recovery Act to uh, making a bold decision to, to save the auto industry. Uh, but we had two years to implement that effort. There was a contentious primary on the Republican side of the aisle, and we spent those two years talking to our targeted voters in battleground states. That's exactly what the Trump campaign is doing today. They're doing it through advertising. They're doing it through right. trips that the president is <clears throat> taking to battleground markets. And, and Democrats are focused on fighting each other to win the nomination. I'd expect that of them during right. the primary, but it's giving President Trump a free year to get his message out. And Ben Lebold, he's getting his message out right now, talking to Joe Kernan over at CNBC, which is uh, uh, to be expected. And the headlines across the Bloomberg are simple. He doesn't want to cut spending on defense. Um, he says no deal with China would mean more tariffs. It means the usual uh, discussion, if you will. Do the Democrats fight back on policy, as we've certainly seen, and let's let's suggest that candidate Warren is the uh, policy wonk of them all, or do they have to fight back or frame the the process on emotion? I mean, do you go policy or you, do you go emotion to position yourself at the convention or after the convention? I think it's a mix of policy and values. So certainly we can argue that the tax cuts that benefited corporations, but not the average American was not good policy. We can lay out an education plan to make sure that in this 21st century economy, we're laying out a plan for the average American to have a good paying job uh, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. Uh, but ultimately, elections are about values, just as yeah. much as they are about policy. And I think when you see images of, you know, kids being locked up in cages at the border, that's not who we are. And I think that's uh, it's also important that our candidates campaign on on the values that they see as fundamental. Okay, to but, being but American. you know, I was going to say that's it. But this is so important, Ben. Democrats have to address an American fear over immigration. Do they criticize a president or do they come up with their own policy of X thousands of people at the border? Which which is the best way to go for them? Well, I, I think there's a couple of approaches. First of all, I think almost every Democrat in the field is on the record in support of a comprehensive immigration plan that, yes, addresses border security, but also offers a, a path to citizenship. And they view that as, yeah. as fundamental to the American way. Secondly, I think we need to attack the notion that uh, it's immigration um, that's affecting the jobs of the average worker in the middle of the country. You know, I think the trends have a lot more to do with our modern economy and globalization and automation. Yeah. And I think it's on us to roll out a plan to show how um, new economy jobs will be created in the middle of the country and how well, if you're not a software engineer, uh, you still have a viable path to finding a good paying job in the future. I agree we should roll out more policy on that front. Okay, Ben, we've got to leave it there. Ben LeBold, thank you so much. An important article in the Atlantic Magazine, controversial article, got a lot of splash, uh, as it should. Uh, he's former National Press Secretary for President Obama's re-election uh, campaign. This is the interview of the day on the roll-up of the Pentagon's providers. Nicholas Heyman uh, was around when the Wright brothers did the first government contract <laughs> to the Pentagon. 
and we are thrilled and honored that he could join us uh, this morning. Nick Heyman, I think we all know, good to have you on, Nick. I think we all know that UTX and Raytheon are ginormous, venerable. We've been told by six experts today there's little overlap. What is the why of this? Is it a revenue grab? Is it a synergy play, or is there something else nefarious going on? No, they've they've alluded to a little bit of you know opportunity from a revenue standpoint, but I think the real core of the why is simply you're now seeing a convergence of defense in you know, critical technologies that are going to be increasingly utilized across commercial aerospace. And um, whether that's cyber protection, you know, for connected aircraft, and, you know, Raytheon is already a major provider for the military aircraft of that today, and whether, you know, Raytheon has developed the next-generation digital air traffic control, we're still using an analog system here, um, radar, you know, ground-based, um, and so that'll make us safer, you know, right. air traffic control environment. And then mm-hmm. the, the advanced analytics and, and AI, Raytheon's really far into that, and um, that's to optimize both the production, okay. you know, aftermarket service. It's really basic stuff. They're they're talking. buying they're buying brain power. They're buying engineers. I get all of that. They're going to bring them in, and there's going to be magic. If you're advising the Joint Chiefs of Staff today, what do you say about this transaction? Well, you can tell from the pitch today that both companies were targeting an audience way beyond institutional investors. Thank you. And you only heard like 18 to 20 million of capital return, half dividends, half share buyback in the first three years. And that was really the only kind of, if you will, inducement for investors. And what you really heard was, hey, Pentagon, we're going to increase our R&D. We're going to share half the one billion of, you know, planned cost savings in the first three years. And I think in the the other side of the room that really wasn't talked about too much today is Airbus and Boeing, and their approval is critical as well. And, um, you know, the one key thing here that you don't need approval for is China. And China really held up probably four months longer than expected. The Collins transaction, there's no uh, need for China's approval for national defense suppliers. 30% of these combined sales would be to DOD. So, Nick, in the marketplace broadly, investors seem to be have a preference for you know pure play companies. Here, we're putting exactly. a, a a defense uh, aviation company and a commercial aviation kind of company together. Is that going to does that suggest a discount for this pro forma company going forward? Excellent question, Paul. And I think what what's really going on. I asked that last night when I spoke to management, and and basically what they're arguing is that the combined companies, even though you'll have 45% commercial, 55% defense, the combined companies will have a higher growth. And in turn, that should help offset, if you will, the um, the discount that would normally you know, uh, uh, be assigned for you know, a hybrid aerospace. What do they do with use of cash then? I mean, if you run through yet on a merger basis... I mean, with this dominance, almost duopoly, what is it, Paul Sweeney, a triopoly? What would <laughs> yeah. Nick, Nick would call it a quadopoly? I don't know. Quadopoly, But yeah. within this focus, no. Nick Heyman, what does use of cash do? Well, you know, I think that they're looking for $8 billion up from six pro forma this year, eight, you know, just for you know, TC Arrow um, and Raytheon, um, that uh, you're looking at returning – 20, you know, uh, billion or something in the first three years. So call it, you know, six, 
seven billion a year. So, you know, most of your free cash is coming back. Ironically, when you look at the balance sheet of the combined entity, the twenty six billion in net debt, only two billion of that is Raytheon's. Twenty four billion is UTC Arrow, yeah. which is down for forty one billion with, you know, um the the, well, the Otis and the carrier now. I, I so just this it's, it's like to me it seems like why do you denounce this now? Why today? If this has been in the in the hopper working through for a year, okay, yeah. and my sense is that there's probably um, something to do with the fact that you wanted to get ahead of the Paris Air Show because there may be some other news at the Paris Air Show. Oh, listen to, to you. He's so good. <laughs> Nick Heyman, gossip columnist. If you're just joining us, folks, Nick Heyman with us. Uh, William Blair, I should point out, Paul Sweeney combined – they're on the edge of 300,000 employees. Yeah, just an extraordinary behemoth here. So so what you mentioned the Paris Air Show, uh, Nick, what do you expect to come out of there? There's a lot of uncertainty. You've got this deal. You've got Boeing. Uh, what do you expect to come out of Paris? Probably no new products, no new platforms, okay? What we'll see more about is either new orders or we'll see orders possibly, you know, move that aren't yet fulfilled entirely from one supplier to another, so there's going to be more of a, a shuffle in you know the date card than there is necessarily going to be, you know, new announcements about where the next concert's going to be. Does this deal today, uh, the United Technologies Raytheon deal, does that suggest or does that prompt more M and A in the defense or aviation business? It's a good question, and you know, at this juncture, there's less and less on the pure defense that really is going to have. You know, arguably the same kind of strategic merit behind the the Raytheon, you know, you know, technologies aerospace merger. So you you've got General Dynamics and you got Northrop Grumman and you've got Lockheed and then you start going way down in the weeds in terms of who's there for defense. And then to argue that, you know, they one of those should merge with GE aviation or should merge with, you know, Saffron or Honeywell. Well you know, Honeywell comes with a lot of other stuff you know, so I, I don't I don't really think that this is going to be kind of a domino, you know, first first of a series of domino right. actions. But uh, Nick came in one final question. Based on all that you've said here, it really it behooves Paul and me to be in Paris in six days, 18 hours. Or, yeah. I mean, we need to we'll get the Guy surveillance call stream. <laughs> Are you going for the food or the entertainment? Oh, no, I would uh, never do that. We'd be going for the <laughs> for the Guy Johnson lectures on the cast of the wing of an Airbus. Nick Kamen, thank you so much. I'm, I'm thank you so much, guys. Have a great, great day. Really appreciate him coming out. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.